Here's the pitch to Cepeda. Oh, hard on the left field. Willie Hart going back. Can he catch it? Yes, sir. A fine catch by Willie Hart out in left field coming off of that ball. Welcome to the BBA Today podcast. We are on episode number 72, I believe it is. It is April 20th, game day. Uh, We've had about, uh, what, three sims, three weeks of game time, so things are starting to shape up. My name is Ron Collins. I am the general manager of the Yellow Springs 9, and I am joined today, as always, by Ted Schmidt, the general manager of the Twin Cities River monsters, which is easy to say if you take a lot of time. I like it slow. It's the RM, right? It's river. It's RVM. River monster. <laughs> we don't. English is a lazy language, right? There's a lot of uh, long sounds and mushed together stuff. It's not one of those crisp, clicking along type languages. And so, you know, whenever you stick some of those softer consonants in a row together, they just turn into mush. It's river monster. I can't say specifically for English, but I can say that my tongue is a lazy tongue. Actually, no, that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a relevant, or not relevant, it's, it's an accurate critique of English. I don't say it's somewhere along the lines I had some linguistics education. We have a, we have a slow, uh, English is a slow and relatively lazy, whatever that means in the context of how sounds are produced, uh, language. Well, my daughter is an actual, has an actual degree in linguistics, and so she could tell me, but I wouldn't ask her because I'd be too embarrassed to uh, not know. <laughs> well, I definitely don't because she'll tell me, she'll say that I was wrong and don't know what I'm talking about. But I, I think, I think I'm somewhere. Well, on the she right can join the crew. Yeah. Well, thanks. <laughs> well, lots of things going on in the league right now. Um, maybe we can take a real quick scan at the standings. Uh, what kind of stories? What kind of stories are you seeing right now when you look at the way the league is playing out in this first three weeks of the season? You know, I'll admit I've been a little lazy. Uh, I've kind of paid attention to Twin Cities and then not really much else because I didn't, you know, as we touched briefly last time, we did not see a whole lot of one team jumping way ahead of the pack or another team falling way behind. It seemed like a fairly competitive opening for the most part. And I, I don't, really care what the standings say until mid-May. You know, so in the absence of one team jumping way out ahead or falling way behind, I really just don't put a lot of stock into what the standings say right now simply because it's early and it's a small sample. And I get, I find the season to be the most interesting in the kind of mid-May through late August stretch. I think that's the part where you kind of find out what the playoff picture is going to look like. Occasionally you get that exciting hot team at the end of the year and that's fun too. But this part of the season, even though it has the most promise, it's like typically the most exciting part. Um, I don't really care about the results a whole lot. It's it's exciting because it's new to everybody, but the, again, you know, just to be the boring stats driven person that I am, the sample size is so small that I, you know, Meh, don't really care. Yeah, I don't think that the actual standings really matter in that light, and I don't think anyone in their right mind really would. You know, 
sit there and say that, oh, Montreal is 12 and 5, so they're going to end at a 0.706, and that calculates out to however, you know. I doubt that that's the case. The storyline for me, though, is that aspect that uh, we still don't really see uh, any team jumping way out ahead. And other than Seattle, who's having a rough time at 3 and 14, I guess you could say Portland at 5 and 12 is having a bit of a rough time, too. Pretty much everyone is there between 6 and 12 wins, which uh, continues to just kind of move the scrum forward. That's I think that's my only real take away from glancing at the standings right now. Uh, New Orleans is hot. They won their last six games. Uh, this Twin City River Monsters team needs to be dealt with. That's all there is to it. You guys have won seven straight. That's no fair. Leading the league uh, but... differential. <laughs> there you go. But like you said, these things really don't say much about who individual teams are going to be uh, at the top or the bottom when you get into that May-June time period, which I agree tends to be the most active, interesting from a GM standpoint. Right. Uh, but I do remain continued. Uh, I continue to be pleased by just seeing the the big, messy chunk that almost all the teams are still in that yeah. That, no, that, uh, is nice. that continues to feel good to me. This is a better start. The one thing I would say, just it's not even just the standings. Like, I don't even care what my players are doing right now. Like, it's exciting to go look at a couple guys and see them um, tearing tearing up the league. But, you know, I don't care if a guy's playing poorly right now or well right now. Um, and I feel as the years have moved on, since I came into this league, I think that as a group, we have gotten more um, sensible and patient. I feel like, you know, 20 seasons ago, uh, there would be people talking about, oh, I need to add this right now. And it's like, no, you don't you don't know anything right now. Like your entire team could be hitting, you know, a buck 20 and it might not mean anything. It'd be really hard for your whole team to be doing that and have it not mean anything. But it's possible. So, like I said, it, yeah. I think we're better GMs as a group than we used to be, uh, which is good because if we were worse, that would be kind of frightening just in terms <laughs> of like a human aspect. Like, oh man, what does it mean if like 10 real life years of playing a game and, and people got worse at it? That's not good. I was going to say we should be better. And, and I'm sure that as a general rule, we are better. And I think a lot of the... Uh... You know, this league is what the league is because it spends a lot of time helping each other figure things out or answer questions for their own team. I think that most of us walk into the season understanding where we think our holes are and three weeks of gameplay doesn't really change our opinion as to whether we have holes or not. But it it certainly adds... um, you know, adds some credence or makes you question whether you actually have holes or not. But I don't think that anyone is using, to your point, I don't think anyone is using these three weeks as a knee-jerk reaction to say, I've got to go fix this problem right now. Or if they're thinking that, they probably thought it even at the beginning of the season, (laughs) which is... I would um, still say that's a little problematic, right? Like if you're using these few weeks of data to confirm a previously held opinion, I'd still argue that you're doing it incorrectly. Um, you should have either had that opinion already. Like, you should just never... That's what I say. It depends on why you've got the opinion to begin right. with. If you already know a guy is not is questionable and he starts three weeks off and he's still looking questionable, you know, that's um, that's different from if you're thinking that he's in good space and he starts three weeks off in a cold space. You, that's a different 
flavor. Well, but I, anyway, I was talking more about the like you think a guy might be a problem, but he could be okay, but you're not sure. And that if you're making a decision based upon these three weeks of data, that you're that that's incorrect. You oh, yeah. shouldn't be doing that. That's not that's not how it works. Um, there you go. But either way, we could we could nitpick lots of stuff here. Yeah, I want to actually, uh, from our episode last time, we skipped over something that I was thinking about talking about, and that is uh, Long Beach made a deal with Danya Chekhanov, uh, made a six-year uh, pact with Danya, $126 million for those six years, and that does not include the, I don't think it includes anyway, the uh, $6 million a year bonus for 100 innings pitch. So Danya is going to be a very, very rich uh, gentleman here for quite a while. Let's see, 50, 70, 80, 100. Yeah, I don't think that that includes the this the uh, the six year six million dollar bonus. So if you take six million times six, and that's 36 million, if I'm doing my math right, that means he's uh, about 162 million dollar player uh, plus more if he ends up winning one of those Nebraskas that he probably has deserved. Or deserved is an interesting word there, plus another million for all-star bonuses. So that could be another six million. What are your thoughts on the Danya Chekhanov deal? It's fine. Like, I, I I think it's, you know, it's one that I think for the first four years you can be pretty excited about. And for the next couple, um, it's going to be an anchor. You know, 2050 and 2051, it will be difficult to compete uh, with that, both with that uh, cap hit on the roster and the extra money in bonuses that he is likely very very likely to get i'm not too concerned about the extra money in the early years simply because the way bba finances are set up if you are a good competitive team that structures things well you can make well in excess of what you can spend against the cap anyway um, this will not this might hamper long beach's ability to say play an IFA or buy out other deals, um, you know, to do some of those things with money, they don't. You don't have an infinite supply of money, but the the bonuses are not going to cripple them. They're not. They're not really a problem. They just won't be able. They just gonna have to be smart about other things and not make other mistakes. And if you were going to tell me, Ted, you have a choice. You can have Chekhanov at a lower cap hit. But you'll lose financial flexibility, so you're just gonna have to be really careful to not make other mistakes. I'll still take checking off at a lower cap hit. So I, it's, I think it's a fine use of your kind of you know slush fund of uh, bonus, bonus money. Um, those last couple of years will be tough, and you know, but in Stephen has never had a problem going boom and bust, and if that's the way he wants to do it, that's fine. Um, and, you know, that's uh, that's a, it's a perfectly reasonable, reasonable way to go about things. Yeah. And I think at the kind of macro level, this is a deal that Long Beach had to make. You cannot lose Daniel Chekhanov at this point. No. Um, you just cannot let that happen, given where where your team is right now. Um in the in the metafictional world, the fans would literally chuck you off, <laughs> chuck you off a, a very short pier <laughs> if you let down your checking off walk at this stage. You know, when you're making a big long deal like this, there's almost certainly you're going to have to create a pinch point for yourself someplace. Um, 
you know, Aaron has done it with his big pitchers and he's managed to work his way around it. Uh, I've got a big problem with Don Popham's contract that we've talked about before and I won't get into a whole bunch, but at the end of the day, I thought this was really a, a solid deal. It does create problems for Stephen down the road if his finances start to, fa- to fade. But, you know, that's, that's why they pay us the big GM bucks to deal with the problems that we kick down the road where before I, it's all said and done. Were I Stephen, I don't know that I would be so worried about those financial problems in 2050 and 2051. I don't know that you can plan on competing in those years with this kind of salary plus bonuses on mm-hmm. the books. And so if that changes you from, say, being like an 81 or 82 win team to being like a 70 win team, simply because you don't have the resources to get put the other players on it, I'm not sure that if it's a couple of years like that, that that's really even that big of a deal. You go from being a marginally competitive, mediocre team to a non-competitive team. And for a short term, especially if you can, you know, keep some, you know, more fun players on the roster, guys that fans will come see if you're kind of, you know, there's a way to be bad and keep your fan interest up as best you can versus be bad and have a horrible fan interest. And so if you do a good job of managing your fan interest during a two to three year, three is a little long, but two year downspell, I don't know that it matters if you win 70 games versus 80 games during that downspell. It, it, it's a harder, it's harder to do, but it, you know, it's that sort of, you yeah. can, I don't know. I, I'll figure some way to edit this into something that makes sense, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's no, not I get worst. your, I, I get your point. You know, the, you're trading problems for today for problems in the future and which ones are easier or less consequential or whatever. When you are in Stephen's shoes and, and Long Beach is competitive right now, um, the problem set that you're worried about in, if you're worried about a problem set in, in 2050, in 2049 and 50 and 51, you're probably missing the trees for the forest or the forest for the trees, whatever the metaphor is I'm looking for there. Um, the compare and contrast, Vancouver also made a big signing uh, recently with Fernando Castillo, outfielder, a 20-year-old outfielder, and they signed him for, I think it was $98 million for five years in an interestingly structured contract. I don't know if you've looked at that at all, but... He's going to be paying Fernando Castillo, uh, who is a major part of their franchise right now. And probably if there's a cornerstone, maybe he's either the cornerstone or one of them now that they've traded Angel Gonzalez. But they're going to go kind of the opposite direction, which is more of a front load, uh, $30 million in that first year, $17 million for three, and then a fifth year, another $17 million team option, which I thought was a uh, an interesting signing for a team who is not really competing at this stage, although they are doing quite well. It's early in the season and all the small sample sizes go into account. People discounted Vancouver and do not expect them to uh, be at the top at the end. So this signing made against that backdrop actually makes me wonder whether what Taylor was focusing on was uh, let me get a major piece into the bucket with a contract that might be more tradable in another year or two. But then that assumes that he's, that Castillo is going to remain healthy and productive and worth 17 million plus, right? 
Yeah, Do you have any thoughts on that? Have you, have you looked at what uh, Taylor had done there? Well, it's interesting, right? He's already 28, and he is a good player. I wouldn't say he's a superstar, all-time great player, but he is a very good all-star level, you know, two out of three years kind of player is what, I'm, what I think I see out of the guy. You know, you know, I don't know, two out of three or every other year, something like that. He's also a captain for whatever that's worth. I don't care about the $30 million a year. That is uh, money spent in a year where I don't expect Vancouver to be expensive, so I think that's fine. The real question, as you point out, is, is the timing. I don't expect Vancouver to compete this year or next year or, frankly, in 2047. I think there's a chance if everything goes smoothly, and I haven't looked into Vancouver so deeply that I know their farm system to the point where I can completely predict this, but I don't think they have that big wave of prospects that in two years is just going to be running the league over. So they're looking at their next competitive window being 2048, 2049, probably at the earliest. Well, no, probably 2048, 2049, and then 2047 at the earliest. And yeah, Castillo's going to be 31, 32. You don't know that he's going to be the same player. I think the knee-jerk reaction is to maybe try to trade a guy like that or to, you know, to let him walk. It's a, it's an odd timing for an extension, but I don't really know that there's anything you can say negative about it. You know, one of the things I've come around more is, that, I mean, as you and I have talked about going through rebuilding processes, you have to have players on the team. You mm-hmm. have to, you can't really, you can, but it's really not the best idea to just hit absolute rock bottom. And, you know, you look at what is Vancouver going to get as a trade return for a guy that um, is on the last year of a deal, potentially, that is a corner outfielder in a league flooded with corner outfielders. And I, yeah, maybe you just hold on to the guy. I mean, you know, again, so what if in 2048 and 2049, he's a little overpaid? They're not going to be paying tons of other guys at that point. Now, maybe it'll hurt their chances in free agency a little bit if they've got a core coming up and they want to try to add some big pieces. But I, I think there's a lot of good ways this work out. You know, when one of the things you really need to do when you're trying to evaluate any sort of offer is look at the alternatives. Right. It's not just the it's not just the offer itself and it's a vacuum. It's I can extend this guy, I can let this guy walk, I can trade this guy. And if you're not taking into let trading or letting the guy walk into your consideration of what the extension is, I think you're probably missing a big big piece of the puzzle. So I, the other aspect of this is that when you look at Vancouver's structure, uh even that signing, the thirty million dollar signing doesn't put them uh, to the cap next year. They still have a $10 million uh, gap on the cap. I'd have to look at their budget. But they also have two um, aging veteran contracts, uh, David Naboro at $21 million and Angel Castillo at $8 million that are under team options. Right. So they have the capability uh, if that if a window opens for them a little bit and, and or if one of those two falls off, they could add an extra $30 million into their possible spend. So they're in really solid financial situation. Uh, for me, what this does in, again, the metafiction is it basically says that this era of the Vancouver Mounties are going to be the Jeffrey Smith, Fernando Castillo era, right? They're going to be led by these two guys. Um, and when you get to 2047, that'll be $32 million of their of their payroll, which means they still have 70 to $80 million that they can just kind of throw around um, with their young guys coming up that could well, well fit. So I'm not sure uh, if you just look at it as dollar on the war or war on the dollar, I'm not sure the Castile signing was a fantastic signing. 
uh, it was probably pretty good. And as long as Castillo doesn't fade, then the dollars per war should still be pretty solid all through. Castillo would be about 32 or 33 at the end of that contract. And it is reasonable to think he can still be a three to four war player at that time. Uh, but it makes sense, I think, within the context of the entire structure of the team. And so I look at this and think, I'm not sure exactly what Taylor's plan is, but it seems like he's got one. So. Yeah, and, right. And that's that's what I, you know, I think not to sound like the snooty, I know everything person that I actually am. <laughs> I think okay. dollars, yeah, I, we, I, I we would, all know that. <laughs> I've noticed a flavor in reading um, pieces about Major League Baseball and kind of even in the way we discuss things here. I feel that a lot of us have moved past dollars per war. I think dollars per war works in, and, and I think the reason for that is salary cap. Um, we've always had a salary cap and Major League Baseball, for better or worse, really worse, is acting as though it has a salary cap. And when you have a salary cap, dollars per war doesn't work because it's not just the salary cap. When you have the combination of a salary cap and these earning structures where you have a huge period where players are vastly underpaid for what they're worth, it's never as simple as dollar per war because half of your team, you know, most of the good players on your team will be paid less than the extension or free agent dollars per war amount. So it's really dollars per free agent war and then the orbit versus dollars per extension war versus dollars per war per what I have available. And so it, you know, not the, yeah, I guess my take on that. And I like that, uh, that I, that thought I hadn't really thought about it too much. My take on that is not that we're moving past dollars per war, but it, for me, it's kind of like a gate. You know, my very first thought is if I think of dollars per war or cash per performance or whatever we want to think about it, right? I know I've said before, I know, I want to be able to create a replacement level is 45 or 48 wins. I want to win 95 games. So that means I need to win to gain about 50 war for my 110. And so you can start doing that kind of math. Um, but the ultimate thing is is to realize, and this is where I think you're you've gone, and and I completely agree with you. To realize that the goal is to utilize all of your resources to do the max for your team. And right. so, for example, when I've got a whole lot of young guys, I can afford to pay a whole lot more for a war <laughs> than than I can if I don't. Right? If I've got a whole bunch of of expensive players like I have right now. I am, I can't even play in the free agency world that everyone else is playing at because dollars for war means nothing for me. I don't have the dollars to begin with. Right. <laughs> but then you get into these kinds of deals where I was talking about Fernando Castillo is probably um, is probably about properly paid for dollars per war thought. I might think it's just a tad more than I feel comfortable with, but that doesn't mean anything in context of the Vancouver position. You're, you would, if I were in Taylor's shoes, and I'm not Taylor, but if I were in Taylor's shoes, I'd be saying, screw dollars per war. This is a guy that I want in this slot, and I've got a plan to build around all these things and whatever, right? Right. And, and which is, I think, what you're trying to get to. Yeah. It's not, right. It's not just that simple, right? Uh, now, if, if you, if we were uncapped, it would absolutely be dollars per war. You would just make as much money as you could, and you would try to efficiently spend that money. But when we are capped, 
now it's you try to make as much money as you can, but you can only spend so much of it. And yes. so you have to do this complex, you know, you know it's and a, the salary cap warps the market. That's yeah. uh, to a greater degree is one of the things that we've been talking about for game decades, really, ever since I've been here is what is the market and how much can players demand and, and actually get. And, um, you know, one of my arguments back two decades, two BBA decades ago was players are not asking for as much as they can get. And because our market is warped, players are asking for dollars like they're in a major league world versus, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, anyway. Let's move on a little bit to something you had shown me. You did a little bit of work and you're apparently going to have a lot more coming, but it ties in nicely to a discussion that popped up. All of this kind of stems back to Mike Simon, but he did that, you know, milestones thing and that got to looking at home run numbers and the rates we hit him at. And then he put up, he updated another one of his viz a little couple days ago and it showed this big takeoff in home runs in the BBA in the 2030s and there's some comments about that, and so I actually let out a little bit of a spoiler that you have some stuff that we're going to take a look at today. Um, oh, and I think it's I think it's quite exciting. Right? You have a lot of stuff. I know we talked before the show. I am so pumped about the stuff that you have coming. But I am uh, I am so insane. I should I should not be allowed close to Excel. That's <laughs> that's all that I can say. Um, well, before I get spinning off into that a little bit, because, yeah, there's lots of interesting stuff. Um, I also want to throw a little uh, nugget out. I think we need to do a podcast sometime here with Joe Letterer and uh, Randy Wiegand to talk about their really fun, fantastic ranking of pitchers that's going on right now. Um, it's a little bit early in the process, maybe, to dig down into it because it feels like a hot pitchers list. Uh, today, whereas if they get another uh, month or so into it, it'll start to stabilize out. So I just, uh, if we're talking about uh, weird and esoteric measurements of uh, BBA players using Major League Baseball weird stats things, uh, I want to first off tip my cap, cap to what Randy and Joe are doing there. I'm really excited about that. I'm, I'm enjoying watching each of the updates. But yes. You mentioned Mike Simon's milestone charts, which I were definitely a major player in some thinking here. But then, of course, uh, Mike's milestone charts were built off of some uh, series of conversations that we have had forever and ever. And I think every online league has about and every major league, uh, you know, major league baseball has this the value of counting stats versus value and all sorts of things. Um, I actually got uh, focused on this idea from a combination of Mike's stuff, and uh, you had made some comment at some point about, oh, the prevalence of home runs, right? Um, we're going to focus on home runs for this one. I can actually do this same study in four or five different stats, and and I probably will because that's me. But you had made some comment about, you know, you know home runs are just so much more available right now to the general public that um, than they were in the major leagues. And so using 500 home runs as a me metric, blah, 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 right? So anyway, what I have done and what I will begin to post here shortly is a uh, comparison using, in this case, I'll just focus completely on home runs for this conversation, comparing the BBA environment uh, home runs per at bat to various different eras of the uh, Major League Baseball 
world in home runs per at bat, right? To try to get a flavor for um, just how big these differences are. And we were talking about John Mick at one point, and we we're talking about 500. Is is 540 in the BBA, or is it 560? Kind of the magic number that 500 would be in the major leagues. Those are other questions I was trying to get to. Um, and it's it's interesting, right? If we look at the home run rate that the BBA has been at for its first in the modern era, right this moment, I'm only looking at the at the modern era on this chart that I've made. But in reality, I've actually gone through and done everything in the postmodern era since I made this this uh, chart that I sent to you, and I'll post that too. Uh, but if you look at the modern era, we've been running at a, we started at about 0.03 home runs per at bat. And if you were to start us off at the beginning of the major leagues, right, the beginning of the major leagues, call it 1900, they were at 0.05. So home runs are 600% more, right? 0.005, not 0.05. Yeah, 0.005, sorry. They're 600% more in the BBA than there were in the early days of Major League Baseball, right. which is but that's not really fair. Right. What's that? Well, that's what you said. That that's not surprising. That's not. Right. Yeah, it's not surprising at all, and it's also not really fair because Major League Baseball at 1900 was very different than any other era, right? So we move up into the 1930s, where you suddenly have it at about 0.015 versus our 0.3. So suddenly that we're really only about twice as often, twice as many, right? We have twice as many home runs in the in the environment as there was in roughly the 1930s, right? 30s, early 40s, whatever, which is interesting, right? You can start to do some interesting thinking about that. Move it up forward into the 1950s and 60s, and suddenly you've got them at about, uh, Major League Baseball is at about 0.025 to our 0.3, and we still have, what is that, roughly 16, 15, whatever percent more home runs in our environment than in the, than players in the 1950s. And, of course, the interesting nuance here is as we move our environment up, about halfway through our modern era, our rate started to increase. And so, for example, today we're up in the 0.038 to 0.04 range. Uh, so we have actually increased from 0.3 up another, you know, decimal point, 0.03 to 0.04. Anyway, making a long story short, I then take our structure and I move it up and down the eras to where we can see if I align the end of the BBA in 2044 to Major League Baseball 2020 and then work backwards. Uh, what we basically see is we've had, I'll call it three different eras so far. And when I roll in the um, the postmodern era, the BBA, we'll actually see a, a fourth, right? Hey, just a little note here, guys. This is the second time Ron has said postmodern era when he meant pre-modern era. That's just a, you know, presenting on the fly language mistake. No big deal. Just wanted to clarify that a little bit. And what you get is that there have been the early days of the... Uh, pre-modern BBA is actually uh, a little less, the home runs are a little less prevalent than they were in the MLB if you were to start and have a full, uh, what is it, 73 years, right? From about our 
modern day period to, I'm going to guess 2010, we had home runs 0.2 to 0.3. So about 50% more home runs in our environment. Then there's actually a period of about a decade and a half where our home run rate is about the same and maybe even a little less in certain places than Major League Baseballs would be if we were lining up history the same kind of way. And then we move into this kind of pure modern area where we've gotten into, you know, we've had an offensive explosion over the past decade and a half where our home runs are, again, considerably more prevalent than they were in the Major Leagues. Right. And what we think of the major leagues. I mean, and, and when I look at these right now, you know, if you're watching major league baseball and you're sitting there going, man, all these guys do is hit home runs and strike out. Everything's a home run. That's what the BBA has been like from about 2030 on is what I'm taking. You know, like we, it, the MLB home run rate is actually right about what ours is currently. Yes. And it's right about what ours has been for the, since about 2030. So, yeah, and and it's actually interesting, you know, we think about the steroid era. We were talking about this a little bit before the, the show started, right? The steroid era was about 0 .3, um, 0.03 to 0 .034 or something like that in the major leagues. That's where our baseline, that's a little more than our baseline. Right, um, that's roughly right. That's just above what our baseline's been since 1995. Right, so we've been playing in the steroid era and now, plus, we got to the modern-day era levels before modern-day did. <laughs> right, before actual baseball did. Right. And, you know, when I'm looking at this graph that you've got, if you want, you know, the uh, the visual. So calculus sounds really hard because it is actually hard to manipulate. But visually, calculus is actually very elegant. And um, you would actually you could use a whole bunch of stuff to like mathematically derive this, but you don't have to because somebody already graded the graph. The difference in how much we hit home runs compared to a similar period of MLB time is the is the area between our two line graphs. It's the it's the shape between the two curves. That's right. how many more home runs we've hit. You know, just to kind of recap, because you the first time you went through it's a it's a lot of explanation and a lot of decimal <laughs> points and stuff. So I am going to do my summary of what I think you just told me, and you can tell me if I'm getting it right. Let's start with MLB. MLB, you've got 1900, early 1900s baseball, which is just not the same thing. And then Babe Ruth happens, and from the 20s to about the the beginning of the 40s. You see this gradual increase in home run rates, but it's right about 0.015. And then there's a dip that's almost entirely, I would think, has something to do with uh, World War II. But yes. um, once that dip is gone, you continue to see this gradual increase in home runs until it stabilizes at about 0.025. And it kind of stays there. It kind of stays at 0.025 from about the early 1950s through the 80s, yeah. like all the way up to 1990 yeah. MLB. And that's what so when we think five home and hundred home runs, guys, when all of us are sitting there going, that's what five home and hundred home runs means. We're thinking about 1950 to 1990. That's and that makes sense. That's what we think of all these guys that we think of in the Hall of Fame. And that rate is 0.025, just about that whole time. And then as and you it's jaggedy, out, but it's I mean, like I was saying, if you if you squint your eyes, yes, that's, it's right. 0.02 to 0.02, somewhere in there. That's what that's when the 500 home run threshold really became a thing. Now, what we do see is after the strike, 
all of a sudden the home run rate stabilizes right up around 0.03. So that's, you know, post-strike, steroid era, juiced ball, whatever you want to call it, you know, get fans in the seats, hit more home runs. That's 0.03. And that 0.03 is where we have been in the BBA just about for most of, from 1995 BBA time to, to about 2030 BBA time. And then MLB does a weird thing where the home runs really drop off. Pitchers just gained a big advantage, I think, from early analytics. And um, pitching approaches changed. They outpaced the hitters, and rates went down and down and down. And then my interpretation of things in Major League Baseball is that they juiced the ball and lied about it. Um, they, that they intentionally juiced the ball and lied about it. I really think that's what's happened. And that's why we've seen this huge home run explosion. That's you know, And that's I, probably fair. I would also say the, the the dwindling time period also corresponded to an increasing of the strike zone size. Right. And for those who want to get into the steroids or HGH things, you know, you can make an argument that that makes some in, involvement. We talked about it beforehand. In my opinion, there uh, you can pick weighting of any of those three factors however you want. Uh, I tend to agree with you that the weighting of the steroids is way overdone. I think the juicing of the ball and the size of the strike zone are actually the two most prevalent things that Major League Baseball can do to increase and decrease (laughs) home runs. Uh, But I I would also not disagree that, uh, that the steroids and human growth hormone made a difference, whether it be directly in performance or as you were arguing off screen a little bit, um, just merely the fact that it'll allow players to perform better, right. <laughs> you know, not, to, to heal. <laughs> it allows them, it allowed them to maintain their athletic peak while they got more experienced at the game. So it's like the, you know, why can, why can race car, why are, why are like, you know, IndyCar careers? Why do some guys last so long? Well, it's because they continually get better and better and better and better. And yeah, they don't have the reflexes and reactions of a guy that was 20 years old, but they have way more reps. They're way better at what they used to do. Well, the same thing happens with any other sport. It's just unfortunate that your ability to do things physically falls off while you still have so much ground to be gained. And so I really think the big thing with steroids and human growth hormone was not the strength. It was the fact that these guys, I mean, look at the peak years of these guys. They're all in their mid to late thirties. And that's because that's not just because they were stronger. It's because they were better and they hadn't lost their physical tools because they cheated. Yeah. And, and it could well be, I, I would not discount that argument. Um, I think there are several arguments. Now, let me, let me throw the, the big, <laughs> the big kahuna down because we can talk about these just in general forms, right? And those are interesting, and um, and they help focus opinion. And like you said, I like the area under the curve analogy. Um, that's that's everything that I'm doing right now and talking about rate increases between BBA and Major League Baseball. Is I'm actually just looking at the area under the curve and making that guesstimate. What I have also done, and what is going to actually be the centerpiece of this magnus opus, uh, magnum opus that I'm going to begin posting here, like Randy and Joe are doing with their pitching study is in my in my level of depravity and insanity I have gone through all of the uh, almost all of the uh, BBA uh, leaderboard for home runs and my intention is to do this probably with things like strikeouts and walks too just because that's who I am but two hits uh, I have now gone I can tell you I have gone through all of these uh, all of our players and I have asked this question I've said, if this player 
with this career arc in his ability to hit home runs had started uh, relative to the average league average, right, of each year. If this player had started his career in the major league of 1930 and 1940 and 1950 and on down the line, if they had started their career at that point and hit home runs at the same rate better than average in the major leagues, how many home runs would they have ended with? And so, for example, I have started using Hector Cano, who is our uh, BBA, I think, number four uh, home run hitter right now with 643 home runs in his BBA environment. He started his career in 2014 and he played through, you know, whatever the home run field was of 2014. He was X percent better than average. If I place him in 1930 and make him that same amount better than average, how many home runs would he hit starting his career in 1930? Now, I've already told you what the answer to that is. Do you remember it? I thought that for 1930 it was slightly less. I don't remember. I thought it was still, I thought it was still 500 and something. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, in no, 1930. No, it's not even close. 311 home yeah, runs. I'm sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. I was, I was thinking 1950. Oh, I and wrong. I'm going to steal a little bit of my thunder on my, on my, uh, post here. But for example, compare that to Jimmy Fox who actually started his career in 1929 and was, I think, 23 or something like that in 1930. How many home runs did Jimmy Fox hit in that environment? 534. Right. And this is, and this is what we were talking about before the show. Jimmy Fox's 500 home runs. And I don't know. Now I'm blanking. Pick a guy from the 90s. That's not a steroid guy. Damn. Brent that's McGriff. what I'm trying to do. Who? Fred McGriff. Perfect. Jimmy Fox's 500 home runs and Fred McGriff's nearly, let's just say Fred McGriff had 500 because he had like 490 something, right? Yeah. Not like even close to the same or something. Not even anywhere close. Jimmy Fox is like 800 home runs over the course of Fred, Fred McGriff's career based upon when he started or something like that. Yeah. And, if he were that much more or better than average, right? Right. And that's the, I mean, and if you want to get more, even more crazy, we talked about this for the show. If you take the rate, Babe Ruth is unreal. If you take the amount better than the rest of the league, Babe Ruth's home run totals were, and you put him in the 1990s, it's not even possible. He would have hit a home run like every at bat. <laughs> like he would have hit more, he would have had to have hit more home runs. Yeah, I've got to do that math. I've got to, got to go the other way. So for example, if he, uh, Hector Cano would have hit 311 home runs if he started in 1930. But if he moved into, if he started his career in 1940, right, that 311 turns into 390, okay? If he moved, if he started in 1950, that 390 turns into 523. Now realize that Henry Aaron started his career in the 50s, right, in the early 50s, right? Henry Aaron hit 755 home runs. Hector Cano starting in 1950 would hit 523. 500 is still a lot of home runs. I mean, that's a good, I mean, he's a, he's a Hall of Famer. I'm not doing this to de decry that Hector Cano shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Right. He's great. I'm just trying to show and thinking about it from that perspective of, and I'm really digging into that question. The more I get into it is 
what is average and how much better, you know, you, know, you talked about uh, the example of uh, the big dip during World War II. Well, the big dip shows the average quality of a home run hitter during that time period. The league average went way down in World War II. Interesting question then. Um, did we suddenly see, I, I need to go back and look at that more, right? The ultimate problem is, is you don't have Ted Williams hitting in World War II against that poor league average. He was off fighting World War II, <laughs> right? The reason league average went down is all the great hitters are gone, um, which is interesting. If we move Hector Cano up into 1960, though, that 523 drops to 474. And if we move him up to 1970, it drops to 459, right? The 60s and 70s were not home run prevalent. And that actually, there's that's we were talking about the jaggedness of the league average during that time period. Um, the 60s and 70s were a pitching minded world. Well, they raised the mound. Yeah, and they, then, and they, then lowered they it had the mound this, high. Yeah, right? like, um, Hector Cano, if he started in 1980, though, would be back up to 523. And interestingly, in this home run rich area of our modern day baseball, if he started in 1990, he would hit 625. And if he started in 1995, which is the beginning of the steroid era and into the prevalent um, home run area, he would hit 642. And that just right? kind of that just kind of backs up. I think the assertion I made several weeks ago is that our entire era has been our the entire BBA existence up until recently has been played at the rates roughly of the quote unquote steroid era of baseball. Um, yeah. And the interesting thing to me is what does that say about the R in replacement? Right. Uh, in war. Right. R, a whole R equals replacement. Right. It's probably higher than everybody's just kind of mental image based upon the real life Hall of Fame. It would be my yeah, and so here's another, let's turn it around, right? Let's turn the whole thing around, right? You take Fred McGriff, who hit 493 home runs against the replacement level of his era, and we put him in a time machine and we send him back to 1930. Do you think he's still only going to be that much better than league average? I disagree with that. I think he would be Babe Ruth plus. Sure, sure, but that's the, but that's the, that's the impossibility of, of transplanting a player to a different time because you, well, do you take modern training, modern genetics? Because we're breeding athletes. Don't get this idea that we're not, that these are the same people. Athletes are bred now and they've been that way for about 30 oh, years. Sure. The average person cannot become a professional athlete anymore. They are gen the professional athletes are genetically superior to you or I in terms of their athletic competition. They're bred for it. Um, so if we take that in training, you just can't put that guy in. Yeah, I mean, if you put if you put like Mike Trout in 1900, they would there. If you did that, we would all be going to the church of Mike Trout. They would literally think he was God. Exactly. Um, but 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 what you can do is what you've done. You can translate the rates to say what does this mean based upon what does this rate mean? What is the amount that Hector Cano did better than replacement? You can right. you can slide that around to get an idea for what that means compared to 
and, and that's my assertion. I don't think that most people under 500 home runs, the Hall of Fame, 3,000 hits, 500 home runs, those are 1950s to 1980s baseball Hall of Fame standards. They are based upon that playing style because for a very, very long time, baseball was about the same. They're not, they're not based on even modern MLB, 1990, you know, strike on MLB rates. They're not based on that. That's not, you know, uh, Fred McGriff's 493 home runs. So let's just say, for, you know, they're, they're not, it, the reason he's not in the hall is because we all knew that that wasn't that special. There's no yes, way but, a guy from the Right, 1950s. but let's go, let's continue to do the swapping stuff. Well, let's take Jimmy Fox in 1930. Playing, you know, hit 500 and X home runs in 1930. Do you actually believe if you could do a time machine and bring Jimmy Fox up to 1995 and then 1990 when Fred McGriff was playing, do you think he would hit 534 home runs? I think not. No, but again, it's, it it doesn't work, right? Like it doesn't, it's not the same. I don't think that that matters is my, is my point. Like I don't, I think that you only compare athletes against the people they played against. You don't try to take that player and put their very era-specific physique and training regimen and skill and ability against people from a different era. That's just that I don't I don't understand the purpose of that comparison. It's when you get into these Hall of Fame goat comparisons, right? And people are like, "Dude, LeBron James would destroy like Michael Jordan." Yeah, he would. Oh, LeBron James would crush Jordan. Peak at you tell you if you put like peak Jordan against peak LeBron James in like a one-on-one competition, it would be no contest. But that doesn't matter. That's not that question you're asking when you're asking who's the greatest of all time, because if you, that's not to, to make that conversation even more boring. I'm not even certain if you you know if you go far enough, it gets ridiculous. Like. Average backup center in the in the NBA would destroy Kareem. Average backup center in the NBA would make Wilt Chamberlain look like a chump. And so, so do you uh, do you derate do you downgrade a player who is twenty percent better than average today? Merely because he is playing against players who are much, much better than the greats played against. Yes. Because you only care about how you can appreciate their athletic ability and talent and skill. But when you're talking about like a thing like a Hall of Fame or like a greatest of all time, you should be only concerned about how much. I mean, taking out the fame part, taking out the like the narrative part, if we're just talking about ability. When you're comparing ability of player, you should only compare them against the players they played against. <laughs> like it, it's there is no there's nothing to be gained complaint trying to compare player ability against like guys they did. So you're suggesting the Hall of Fame should just be just flat out the top four percent of all players of any particular time? No, not necessarily. Like I think that narrative has a role and things like that have a role, but like if you're but if you're talking about the skill component, if you're talking about the the stats, the what they did, if you're using any sort of like stat based argument, you need to be doing it relative to the players they played against, not relative to some threshold that may or may not mean anything. <laughs> um, yeah, see, I think that's the thing that is so uh, fun about this cut and the reasons why I'm thinking about it because um 
you know, number one, I definitely see that argument. Uh, I don't know that I 100% agree with it, but I definitely see that argument. Um, there is, there is some question in my mind, for example, the, the, uh, issue of does Fred McGriff's 497 home runs or 93 or whatever he hit mean the same thing as Jimmy Fox in his 500 and something, right? Uh, Jimmy Fox was a, a legend of his time because he was one of the top two, three, four guys hitting home runs at the time, right? Uh, over his whole career. Uh, let, let's move it away from Babe Ruth because Babe Ruth is too much. Yeah. He's, he's a, <laughs> right. Right. Babe Ruth is too much because he was so much better. He's Babe Ruth is the Gale Sayers of running backs of the 1960s in my mind. Right. Um, the, um, but you look at the, the, a similar career profile to Hector Kano's 311 home runs was Chuck Klein, 300 home runs, uh, in Philadelphia in the 1930s, right? Chuck Klein made it into the Hall of Fame, uh, but he only had 300 home runs, right? He wasn't a lock. In fact, he only got into the Hall of Fame many, many years after he was eligible when baseball writers um, eventually signed him in or the Veterans Committee or somebody like that signed him, uh, signed him in. Um, you would not look at Hector Kano in context of who he was in the BBA and say Chuck Klein, but that's who he was. If you just go by percentage better than average. Right, but my right. argument is that that's not a that has nothing to do with the with Chuck Klein or Hector Kano and their careers relative excellences. That has to do with how we have decided that we're going to perceive those careers and the artificial nature of these Hall of Fame milestones that we've created and then not updated. You know, it's we we set bars and then we never check to see if the bars meant what they did when they were set and the answer is they don't they can't the game's changed and you know i don't know enough about hey baseball history to know a lot about chuck klein i have a rough idea who he is in statistics and the numbers but i don't know how he was perceived relative to his peers but we know for a fact that players that played like especially pre-50s but really even like pre-90s were just evaluated grossly inaccurately because nobody cared about on-base percentage, just plain and simple. Nobody cared about walks. I mean, that's how much that's how much things have changed. Like, it's only I didn't even care about walks until like the early 2000s. You know, we, this is a relatively new concept in the terms of baseball history. Is that that like? Yeah, and walks are something that I want to get. Uh, is probably the next stat that I will go and do this level of of. Uh of weirdness too. So that my guess is that the, that the numbers there will actually bear out some fruits regarding to the way people view things. You know, we talked about and have talked about before in getting, bringing Babe Ruth back into it, right? Babe Ruth changed the way the game was played because until he came, until he showed up, nobody was trying to hit home runs. Right. Once he showed up, people tried to hit home runs, but they still couldn't hit them like Babe. <laughs> so there's something to the to that structure, and uh, these are interesting debates. Uh, I will. Um, uh, we are probably going to come back to this in future BBA Today episodes to some degree because I'm going to start creating a bit of a flurry of uh, 
of posts on this, and I'm not going to give away any other numbers. I used Hector Kano for my first cut and for our conversation here today because Hector Kano is not a controversial figure, right? I mean, Hector Kano was a solid, solid BBA hitter. Nobody disagrees that he should be in the Hall of Fame. He's a fun one to look at. If he's not like, and I don't, I can't remember exactly what Chris's tears were with that, but like, if Hector Kano's not in the top rung, he is in probably, I, I, and I wouldn't put him yeah. there. I would put him in the one just below it. The absolutely, definitely a Hall of Famer, not among the greatest of all time, but absolutely a very good, very, there is no small hall that would not put Hector Kano in. Yes. Like he is. What I will, what I will leave this episode of the BBA with are two points that you're going to see come out here. The first and foremost is I'm going to begin posting a bunch of stuff and I'm going to look at, uh, at posting like leaderboards for the night for careers of the thirties and forties and fifties and blah, blah, blah. I'm going to look at individual players. There are several fun players that we've looked at and talked about as a, as a uh, social structure here, we've talked about the John Mix and the Carlton Winsons and the Emilio Moraleses. They're all going to be in here. There's going to be a bunch of names in here. I'll look at Bob Rakengos and Morris Pennebaker, who are our top tier guys and what they would look like. And the one other thing that I will leave you is that if you look at those areas under the curve that you're talking about and so forth, you get places where we're really close to the B for to the Major League Baseball and some places where Major League Baseball is actually higher. What this turns out to mean is that there are some guys who are overcounted and some guys who are undercounted. Right. Right. Um, you're going to find some players with if they had started their careers in the 1990s and 1995s who would be much better, would have had many more home runs than we count right now, right? So it kind of goes both ways, which is really interesting to me, and I'm having fun looking at it. So uh, it'll be fun to uh, look at. I'm, I'm super excited. I love this stuff. Like this is, um, you know, why why do I like, why did I like sabermetrics and analytics and all that stuff? Sabermetrics more. Analytics is just kind of performance-based, but the um, it's because you can find out stuff. You can like see a different way of looking at a player. I I love going back to like finding like 1950s baseball and being like, holy crap, this guy couldn't even keep a job because he only hit like you know 260, and they're like, oh, he's only a 260 hitter. And then you found out that he like had one of the best walk rates in the league, and <laughs> you know was really one of the better players on most of the teams that the guy was ever on, and just couldn't catch it. You know, nobody cared. And this is another flavor of that, right? We're doing, this is kind of a little bit more meta in terms of like, okay, we know that our perception of stats is based upon, because we're humans, we pick a number that we think is good and we like to stay with that number. We don't go, oh, but I have to change that for 81 and then 82, it was slightly different and 83, it was slightly different. So every year I should be adjusting up and down a little bit and that may drift in one direction. We don't do that. And so to be able to have you do that shift for me. And see how I could think of a player in terms of, well, that's, I'm excited. This could be a lot of fun. <laughs> so anyway, I, I will, uh, I will close off my commentary on this right now because I could actually spend like six hours talking about, uh, about stuff and I, people can. are already bored enough of listening to me. <laughs> I can, but I will not edit or post it. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Anyway, those are all the things that I really had to chat about. Do you have any other topics no, you wanted to bring to, up? We need to get into the Joe and Randy game score work, um, but we'll we'll get there someday. Get yeah, maybe let's let's give them another month or two of uh, of stuff, and then let's 
talk about it and like I say, maybe even have them on and have them talk about the process and what they thought they were going to see. And, but it's really fun. I, I, to me, that's the, um, I love it when people go out and do that kind of thing. That's just so cool. Yep. Agreed. <laughs> Alrighty. Well then I guess with that, I will bring this one to an end. Ted, thank you so much for your time. I've had a great time. Uh, hope, hope we haven't bored the listeners too much. Hope you guys enjoy this as much as I've enjoyed Putting, I hope you enjoy it even only half as much as I've enjoyed putting it together because uh, this is the kind of thing that I think makes the BBA uh, great no matter what you think about or how you think about the uh, conversation about greatest of all time and Hall of Fame and who should, who's better than who. Um, these, are, these are great fun. So looking forward to seeing what everyone has to say about this. You've been listening to the BBA Today, a podcast that covers the Brewster Baseball Association every day. Music is Bold Statement, available at fesleyandstudios.com and used with attribution. Be safe and well, and we will hear you again tomorrow.